He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā 4 and 5 films mō te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. May we boundlessly dream of possibilities beyond our wildest imaginations. I dream of a world where we can be our fluid selves. May we weave communities of support, compassion and active solidarity. I dream of a world where we can come together. May we walk into a future that is connected and thriving for all. I dream of a world where Māori people have got our land back. Where Pakatapui can be free. Where Indigenous knowledge is recognised. And as we heal to Taiyo, we naturally heal ourselves. My name is Kahuka. Kutia and this is Hikaka Noaho, season two. Piki mai kake mai. There is so much power in understanding the story of you. Honestly, sometimes I get overwhelmed when I think back on all the things that have shaped who I am today. But when I understand the story of what came before me, I understand a little of myself as well. Naturally, as Māori, we hear a lot of kōrero about intergenerational trauma and the effects of colonisation. There will be a little bit of that today. But what about intergenerational strength, intergenerational vision? How can we draw on that as a resource, as a source of power and traction towards our future? Today we're going to meet a mama and daughter working towards making change in their lifetimes. You're made to feel like you don't belong because you don't belong. This institution wasn't built for me, it was built for Pākehā. And we get a bit buzzy with a Māori futurist. In that meeting of past and future generations, we have a window of agency where we do shape the future. These are the kinds of things we're going to hear about today. Just a little content warning for the upcoming corridor. This episode contains some intense discussions about mental health and also a bit of strong language, so if you're listening, just take care. We should also say that views expressed are those of the individual. As with all of our other episodes, we believe dialogue and wānanga are important, so do listen with that in mind. everyone. We are in Tūranganuiākiwa. We're in Gisborne. It's a really beautiful autumn day and um, we're just somewhere in Kaiti looking for Fire Sharon's house. Fire Sharon is one of our kaikōrero today along with her daughter Manya Campbell Seymour. Uh, we just went to get some some quiches to have for breakfast and uh, we're going to go find their whare now. I've known Manya and Fire Sharon since I was about 10 years old. My mum actually taught Manya at Oporsky College and she's always been one of mum's favourite students. <laughs> but I haven't seen them since I was a kid. How do I describe Manya? She's super smart and a deep thinker on all sorts of things. Today she's pretty chill, but I do get the impression that she's one of those people that always has a million kobaba on the go. Manya is feeding her baby Repanga when we arrive. Repanga is nine months old, and Manya's also got a toddler named Hanita. On top of all of that, Manya's a doctor, but even then, Fano comes first. I changed from working in the hospital to GP because it was a lot more Fano friendly. 
So Manya's paid mahi is on pause for the moment while she focuses on baby. The most important job and harder than going to work. But um, no, I'm really loving it. And I guess I'm fortunate that I can stay home with my tamariki because I'm, I'm lucky that my tani is also a doctor um, who can support us, plus um, my my mum here in, in Gizzi. Hoi hoi. <laughs> Manya's mum, Fire Sharon, is a teacher. She's one of those nannies who's always somewhere different in the country attending this hui or that wānanga or any other kaupapa important to her. She's got big activist auntie energy and a whole lot of fiery whakaro, which I'm guessing Manya grew up hearing all the time. That stuff like... That's what's important to get off this neoliberal rat race that we're trapped in, but also challenging the powers that be. We're at Fire Sharon's house. She lives here with her youngest son, Iki. Manya lives about an hour south in Wairua. That's where her husband's whanau are. She spends a lot of time here in Gizzi visiting Nan, though. But I think Gizzi Nan's a bit boring for my older moko because it's real exciting being there with all these cousins, uncles and aunties and nannies in Wairua. Manya feels really well supported by all the whanau around her and that makes Fire Sharon pretty happy. You know, it warms my heart. That's the environment I want my mukos to be in. Mm. I don't want my children and mukos to have to endure what I have as a mother. What Fire Sharon is talking about is being a solo mum and raising her seven kids. On top of that, she was also studying to be a teacher. I consciously decided that all my time and energy needed to be with my kids and around them. That's why I went into teaching, to be honest. I knew it would fit in the holidays, and I purposely applied for country schools, and I was there with them on the journey. But it was still really hard, and it did burn me up. With her mum busy with mahi, it fell on Manya as one of the eldest to help out with her siblings. Yeah, you grow up a lot quicker. You just naturally take on those responsibilities of, you know, caring for the younger ones. So Iki, who's my younger brothers, um, he was very sickly and I think I was about 11, 12. So, you know, to help mum, I would bring Iki into my bed, so sleep with me, so that she could get a, a good night's sleep and ready to go to work the next day. And, um, you know, you teach yourself how to cook. (laughs) Yeah, just to help relieve those pressures. We know how this story turns out. Fire Sharon gets her teaching qualification and goes into education. Manya grows up and becomes a doctor. These are both pretty amazing achievements and testament to their community support and hard work. But as we know, both of these career paths are really tough. Statistics for burnout in teaching and healthcare are incredibly high. And they're also wahine Māori. That makes things a little bit harder. Here's Fire Sharon. Because I was up at Waikato University in the Faculty of Ed uh, for almost five years. I never sugarcoated anything. And I regularly had visits from the manager. <laughs> or I was called to an office. <laughs> and and I was... <laughs> So I'm not going to sugarcoat the history. And there was always uh, the element of discomfort. And I would remind students that that's what our children live every day. 
in the schooling system, and it's my responsibility to challenge you to the core, because I do not accept that our we have an education system that pays itself billions of dollars to continue failing our tamariki at the same rate. It's absolutely criminal. Here's what Fire Sharon is talking about. Māori and Pacific students are less likely to leave school with a qualification compared with their Pākehā or Asian counterparts. About 71% of Māori students will stay in school until 17. That's compared to about 85% for Pākehā students. I'm a pretty easygoing person, but, you know, when my back's against the wall, I'm prepared to put my job, my life on the line. So I resigned from the university... Yeah, end of 2018, yeah. And that was burnout, you know, I was, you know, you just, um, the frustration of, of dealing with a system that constantly marginalises us and being a lone voice a lot of the time in meetings. Fire Sharon's pretty straight up about experiencing burnout a couple of times in her career, I think of all those classic reasons that this happens. An overload of work with little resource, not being able to have autonomy over how you work, a lack of community or structural support. Then if you're Māori, there's all the stuff that comes with that. Working within a system that doesn't recognise your culture, being called on to be a cultural advisor without compensation, workplace racism, etc, etc. Unfortunately, all of these ahuatanga are things both Fire Sharon and Manya are familiar with. Why I have this love-hate relationship with my tohu and with medicine is that my degree is my ticket into unsafe white spaces. Who would want to subject themselves to constantly feeling alienated, constantly feeling undervalued, um, the tokenism, you know, all that stuff? Yeah, so I was uh, really proud to get into medical school, um, but it was a hugely alienating experience. Um, I just felt myself becoming less and less mouldy, and I hated it. The university, just in general, like Mum describes, hugely racist. Other students remind you that you don't belong and that you're only here because of the, the Māori and Pacific admission schemes that exist and that you're, you know, less of a student, less of a human, really. Mm. And that's what I mean by was dehumanising, alienating. Yeah, really alienating. Um, you're made to feel like you don't belong because you don't belong because it's not, this institution wasn't built for me. It was built for Pākehā. In 2019, the Waitangi Tribunal released the Hauwara Report, which was looking into health services for Māori. It's pretty bleak reading, talking about a whole lot of ways that Māori are left disadvantaged within our health system. Māori adults within the health system are almost twice as likely to experience racial discrimination in their lifetime over their non-Māori counterparts. There's proof that when Māori, when we go to the hospital... Uh, when we go to the doctors, we spend less time. They kick us out sooner. Um, we don't get as many referrals to services, to hospitals. Um, and when to specialists, we don't get um, tests, blood tests, any tests. And when we are referred to hospital and when we go to hospital, um, we're discharged quicker. 
um, even though our, you know, our death rates, our mortality rates are worse. It's these kinds of disparities which the government is hoping to address with the recent establishment of a Māori health authority. Here's some more statistics from that same report. At birth, Māori men have a life expectancy of 7.3 years less than non-Māori men. It's 6.8 years less for Māori women. In 2010 to 2012, the rate of mortality from rheumatic fever was five times higher for Māori than non-Māori. Māori are more likely to access services later than their non-Māori counterparts and to experience serious disorders or coexisting conditions. Yeah, it's a pretty crazy system, and I know many of us have experienced firsthand some of the ways that that works. But, you know, much like the education system, the health system is just the same. It's just, you know, really heartbreaking to be at the coalface and to see it, how it impacts um, our whānau. And so if you're someone like Fire Sharon or Manya working within the system, I think to be sustainably invested for the long term, you need space to rest, you need community care and support. And to be honest, none of it's going to be sustainable if we don't address those systemic issues that lead you there in the first place. Because you're trapped because you have to survive and you're working in their shit system that doesn't work. So you don't have the time to heal. That's where we go to from there. Mm. So healing first. Healing first. We're going to come back to Manya and Fire Sharon, but now I want to meet a Māori futurist. Kara! Oh, hi. How's your morning been? Good. I like went for a run this morning because I was like, <laughs> like any anxious thoughts, I'm like, come now. And then I release them when I run. This is Hannah Burgess, and I've never met her before, but she's exactly how I imagined. She's wearing this T-shirt that says, F*** your linear time, and she's got this mean land-back tattoo on the back of her legs. Her nails are painted in the most immaculate power design. I love power so much. The generosity of Tangaro and Hinemoana to gift us these. And f***ing yum. Yep, absolutely totoko that. I'm here to talk with Hannah, though, about some other stuff, not just power. It starts with her PhD, which is pretty complicated to explain. Basically, it's about genomic research. Which is essentially this Pākehā, like, idea of finding the causes and solutions to our health issues through our genes. So at the moment in Indigenous communities, genomics is a big one. Like, scientists have kind of come into our communities wanting our DNA, our genes, our genetic information. But the way that I'm looking at it is just an extension of the colonial project. So I think a lot around how I see like mirrors between the way that they treat our lands and frame our lands and our waters and how we can see these same ideologies playing out in the way that science interacts with our body or wants to. Hannah is an artist, so she's puzzled out a lot of these really complicated ideas in a creative way. She makes these really cool zines from old DNA textbooks and American scientists' magazines. Unraveling these colonial ideas by literally cutting them up and like I guess unraveling the book and then putting them back together which is what they did to our stories our pudako and so it feels real cool to just 
be like, actually, you know what? Like, cut it up. On the plane up to Tamaki, I read this really cool book called Whose Futures. It's pretty much a collection of voices and perspectives theorising about different potential futures for Aotearoa. Hana co-wrote an amazing chapter where she applies a decolonisation lens to the concept of time. Māori time, it's not linear. And so I was kind of like resisting this idea of linear time and resisting the Gregorian calendar and resisting these like Parker conceptualizations of time. But then, as with a lot of things, like that critique is only step one. It's like, okay, well then what is Māori time? What is this? Like anything, you know, we started with Papa because the future is about Papa. As Māori, we know Papa is one of the main tools that we have to understand ourselves and our connections to others. Papa connects us to our tūpuna, to the whenua around us. It's how we can know our whānau, our hapu, our iwi, and all of the history of how we came to be. But thinking about it in terms of the future sounds a little bit confusing at first. Because Papa is often translated to genealogy, which kind of confines it to the past. But Hannah says that if you really understand Papa, it can also give you a window to the future. In its ability to explain the origins and positioning of all things, so to know something is to know it's Papa. If you know how something has come into existence, you can also come to see and understand how it will continue to come to be. And so in this sense, through Papa, you can like see the future. You know, we are our mokopuna and our tūpuna meeting in the present. So essentially, as Māori, we can see and understand time through our mokopuna, the eyes that have, will come after us, and through our tūpuna, the eyes that have come before us. This idea of the present, it's not central to our reality as Māori. Like, the present, I believe, is this, like, fleeting moment of past and future generations meeting. It's not the pinnacle of our existence. It's just that kind of like. But in that meeting of past and future generations, we have like a window of agency where we can shape our whakapapa and shape the future. In that meeting of past and future generations, so seeing how hard my mum worked as a single mum. We have a window of agency. That was my big motivation for going to university. Where we can lay down whakapapa. Because I saw it as a ticket to help my whanau. And shape the future. So that I can materialise now this radical future that I want to achieve. Okay, hold up. Let's pause for a second and go back in time a little bit. Tracing Manya and Fire Sharon's Papa to just one generation before. Back to Hineho. Mum, really, she did some amazing stuff. I don't do half of what she did. 
Hineho Kathleen Campbell was born in rural Gisborne on March 12, 1936. She was the first in Manyan Fire Sharon's Whakapapa to graduate from uni. And then she was also a cook at what's still called the Rangatira pub in Tekaraka, and that's where she met Dad. Dad was a Pākehā farmer called Barry. And then they moved to Ōmarumutu and farmed there for some years with her brother, milking and running stock as well as pigs. Around town, Hineho was known as the wahine who got stuff done. She organised community events and fundraisers, even a debutante ball, and was one of the main kaikaranga on their marae. Barry helped out where he could. He would slaughter beasts, uh, mutton and pigs for hui that mum supported. So he was a really good provider. He was a uh, he was an awesome husband to my our Maori mother. But Barry is a complicated character. Loved my dad to bits, but he's still very racist. He's eighty three now, so he left home at thirteen. He's virtually spent seventy years of his life around Maori and Maori communities, um, and we still debate quite robustly even now. It's because of things like this that Fire Sharon didn't learn te reo as a kid. Her mum Hineho spoke te reo, but not really around the house. Now, Dad was um, adamant that mum was not to speak Māori to us. Any time we heard it in the community, and we were in the community a lot, my brother and I with mum, but because of the constant message from home, from Dad, we would switch off. And when we were growing up, he would always say, Mary's not going to get you anywhere, and he still kind of says that. So I didn't learn te reo Māori, and I'm still learning te reo Māori. So Fire Sharon used her window of agency to lay down a different story, one that would ensure her kids did have access to tikanga and tūreo, by sending them to kōhanga and kurakaupapa. Here's Manya. I grew up in a Māori bubble, that's how I describe it, really. Kohanga reo, reo Ruatoki and Ruatoki school as well. Very privileged to have that upbringing and to be raised in a Māori, rural Māori community um, where going to the marae was normal, hearing te reo Māori was normal. Māori was my first language growing up. Um, and then because you grew up in that Māori bubble, you just assume all other Māoris grow up like that too. Manya lost her dad to suicide when she was just six, so both Barry and Hineho were a huge part of her young life. Their house on the farm was the first one she ever lived in. Yeah, we didn't grow up with a father, but we always had a father figure, which was my koro. Yeah, he loved us, man, and he spoiled us, and um, really lucky to have him. Manya feels the same about Hineho. Yeah, she's had a huge influence on my life because I was lucky to grow up with her. I don't know, there's no love quite like the love of your queer. I think um, it's a lot different to the love from your koro and the love from your mum. Um, and she was definitely that loving queer. She spoiled us. Um, she taught us a lot. She dragged us to... Māori kaupapa everywhere she smoked in the car with us <laughs> on all those trips as well and we weren't allowed to wind the windows 
only she was so that the smoke would go out her window. Hineho also had ideas about where the Fano story might head into the future. And in that classic way that nannies sometimes do, she applied just a little bit of career pressure to her moko mahanya. From when I was a little kid, she would always say to me, oh, you know, moko, you, you be our doctor, you know, you, you go be a doctor for the whanau. And I was like, it's just something I heard my whole life. And then my aunties caught on, so they would say it to you, oh, man, she's going to be a doctor. You know, I'm like 10 years old, like, know the first thing about becoming a doctor we had no doctors in our family so in my mind I was like okay so to be a doctor I'll get my nan to drive me to Whakatane hospital and I'll fill out an application form <laughs> and then I'll be a doctor you know because I had no idea <laughs> of how to become a doctor so um, I thought oh yes sounds straightforward you know <laughs> easy <laughs> yeah easy just hopefully I get, yeah, my application gets, goes through. <laughs> so it was a huge relief actually to get into med school because I was just trying to be a good girl and listen to my nan. But unfortunately my nan passed away before I got into medical school so she never got to see me go to med school or graduate which was, yeah, it was really difficult I guess to come to terms with but I know she's with me um, all the time anyway. One of the other ways that Manya and Fai Sharon are laying down a new story and weaving a path of whakapapa is through the Manawahine Kopapa Inquiry, which they just submitted a brief of evidence for. You might have heard of the Manawahine Inquiry, but if not, it's looking into the different ways that Wahine Māori have been disadvantaged as a result of crown breaches of te tiriti. The first part of it was filed 28 years ago by a group that included Dame Fina Cooper and many of our other prominent Maraikura, but it was formally initiated in December 2018 by the Waitangi Tribunal. In the evidence they submitted, Manya and Fire Sharon spoke about their tipuna, horomona and tipene tutaki. These two fought the crown at the siege of Waitanga Ahika and they were sent to the Chatham Islands with the likes of Te Koti. The men weren't sent there alone though. There was well over a uh, hundred women and children that were also sent to Farikauri and there's no record of their names. So, you know, an indicator that um, the value of Tira Wahine, our matriarchs and Tamariki through the process of colonisation have been erased. And so the reason why we went there was to remind them that here, we're still here. My name is Sinead Overby and my poem is called The Reversal. Press palms to the earth and push upwards, force the clay to split and scatter, cobwebbed surface splintering, fissure in a shell that will no longer hold you. You're better off without it, this colonial bullshit. Shards spilling from your shoulders, rock cascades like snow. It's an endless shedding, a crack in the armour, a scatter to winds, it's a fucking liberation. Fractured boulder slowly falls into fragments on the earth. Then you are alone, but not lonely. On a dried up riverbed you stand, awaiting the call of the tui. 
She returns to you centuries later, still singing your memory, calls you to life again. She loved you even when you were a boulder, hidden from your hungered people who almost forgot. Two hundred years protected from guns and coins and churches, but so lonely, too dehydrated to cry. Shards buried in your chest. No, the pain will only destroy you if you let it. So you, the long-lost Udi, liberated, tread firm footfalls on the barren earth. The marks you leave transform to water, trickle slow then fastly falling. You are the current that moves through mountains, connecting all ancestors and descendants, ever-shifting. This is the endless cascade of potential from which a new world will be born, lush and full of living. We've called to you with our stamping haka, raised you up into light now. Show me another smile. Laugh and let water gush full from your heart until you're once more a river we can bathe in, cleansing ourselves of the dirt, then bowing our heads down to drink. It's the young generation that give me hope. It was the same when we went to Ihu Matau. This is Fire Sharon again. At the protest there, you know, it was the young ones that I was so heartened by. And Pania's approach is a very Nawari, very, and, and, you know, rather than use the word protest, it's protective, which I think is cool. And that I'm still old school. Protest is the approach I guess I'm accustomed to and conditioned into. But this shift to protection, you know, is cool too. So, you know, I just embrace any strategy <laughs> and any leadership, and in particular our women, you know, they're just so inspiring. And they're, they're the ones that have the courage to, to lead the way and bring about this change. Throughout this whole series, we've been coming back to the idea of radically reimagining the future. That's obviously right up Fire Sharon's alley, and for her it means... Getting back to the whenua and back to the basics. And getting back to whanau. That was our traditional social structure and we need to get back to that because as a single mother I know how hard it was to not have an auntie or uncle next door or there to come and help me with my tamariki. And I don't want my kids to go through what I went through. And so rebuilding our community. Our whānau, for me, you know, I think whānau order, that kaupapa is coined well, being called whānau order, because we have to strengthen whānau first before you've got any hope of making a difference at hapū level. When I ask Manya about her dream future, she talks about how whānau react when they realise their GP is Māori. You can see how they light up when they see you, especially our Māori whānau, our Māori kids, they would just light up and say, oh, you know, Māori doctor, oh, we need more. So I'm not going to be judged for my problems today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and going to be treated res- not just with respect, but treated adequately. But there's a bit more to Manya's dreams than just more Māori doctors. I want my mokopuna to not have to fight racism, you know, not have to um, fight for their lives um, and that they can just be and be, be Māori. Because 
you know, we've lost so well, we didn't lose anything. We, um, no, it wasn't lost because that makes out that we were careless oh, and that we, we just let our whenua go. We just let our real go, you know, we didn't lose anything. Our resources were taken from us, you know, we were left dispossessed and displaced, you know, with and still nothing. Displaced, still yeah. homeless, nothing's changed. Yeah, yeah. and still so. Still dying prematurely because of a racist health system, too. And that's why it's. it's you know, there's an obligation to resource Māori. Our whānau generally, you know, are doing the best they can with the resources available to them. And, you know, whilst um, strengthening whānau is important, you know, there's also the obligation at a political level, um, a government level basically, to resource our whānau, resource our communities um, so that we can realise our full potential, you know, as whānau, as communities. Um, and contribute back to Aotearoa as a whole, because yeah. what's good for Māori is good for the whole country. We need to be in better relation within and between generations. We're back now with our resident Māori futurist, Hannah Burgess. And so, you know, it might be really easy for me to ask my mum questions like, why didn't you put me through kōhanga reo? Like, why didn't I go to kura? You know, I should actually just question myself, what am I doing so that I can send my kids to kōhanga or kura, you know, and like really seeing myself as an extension of my whānau and not just like the end point. I feel like a lot of the work of those who came before us, they were like making the space. You know, being a kaupapa Māori researcher, I can see that in the way that like Linda Tohiwai Smith, Graham Smith, Leonie P. Hummer, Rangi Māori Rose, all of these people were like creating the space for us. But I think our generation, we've got to figure out what to do with that space. The way Hana sees it, the wero for our generation is not just holding space, but widening it. So how do we make it safe for our whānau who exist beyond these binaries like gender and sexuality? And I think that's our challenge. Sometimes the weight of like seeing everything that's come before can mm. be so crushing and to feel that responsibility yeah. so hard, like damn, like all these people gave their blood, sweat and tears yeah. so that I could know myself today. And yeah. that's a massive responsibility. And so it's so easy to be like, yeah, I need to learn my deal, I need to know my whakapapa, I need to be connecting yeah, my family. Yeah. We're also just trying to heal all yes, the traumas yeah. as people, you know? <laughs> like, like, that to -do list, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> gotta have everything, you know? And like actually realising, again, the power of intergenerational action is like, it doesn't have to happen now and it doesn't, it only begins with us. Now is only a fleeting moment, right? It's a right? fleeting moment, right? We can't right, do right. it all right now. There's a lot of mahi to be done and it's so important that we keep doing it. But when you understand the present the way Hana does, as a fleeting moment where mokopuna and tipuna meet in us, some of the pressure to do it all on your own right now falls away. We want it now, 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 now. And that is a symptom of us you know, putting this, this idea of the present as this, like, pinnacle of existence. But if we do pause, rest, and situate ourselves along this papa, it's heavy, but it's also like, I can take a weekend off. 
I can go and chill out with my friends, you know, like we've got generations. Like, I mean, I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. not to say that work's not urgent. <laughs> it absolutely is. But it's not going to get done if we're not resting and it's not going to get done if we're not experiencing love and joy. So it's just finding that balance. This brings us back to something we've heard in this series more than once. If we want to have the energy for the hard stuff, we also have to allow ourselves some time out. We've talked about how hope is a privilege, but so necessary. The same can be said of joy. I think a lot about laughter in particular. You know, I love being around my aunties and uncles just cracking up. And I can hear the same and like, my mates, a lot of the um, students I work with, the like belly, that like deep belly laughter, that to me Hyena is laugh. like, yeah, the future <laughs> that I want is just all of us cackling. Because <laughs> you know how we have a lot of these monuments for like wars or like battles? I used to always imagine them as these like serious, busy, intelligent, like theorists, like gardening and like doing all this shit, sailing. And I'm like, whoa, they would have like, had shit yards. They would have been up late at night looking at the stars, just talking shit. They would have been like on the floor, like cracking up laughing because they absolutely did. I think so often I've been connected to kōrero about my tipuna through tragedy and sadness and anger. I really love what Hana is saying here. It reminds me of sitting with my older sister in her whare, just asking her what our tipuna were like, what clothes they like to wear, what they had for breakfast. Intergenerational vision can seem like this massive scale concept, but it can also be incredibly intimate, close, human. I came into this series feeling overwhelmed by so many things, and now here I am at the end of it, thinking about the ways that our nannies might have laughed in times long before us. Maybe thinking boundlessly and radically about the future is really about the human moments, the laughs, the cries, the tears, and all the ways that we can weave connection as Māori. The futures for us all should be ones where we can have a sense of place, where we can have access to our basic needs, where we can know and be known by our whānau and our friends, where we can continue to dream and scheme and rock by rock lay a path towards all of these islands that we still have to visit. After all, our people have always been futurists. You know, Māori futurism is woven into like the very fabric of who we are as Māori and we call forth past and future generations and all that we do, like this is most clear probably like on Marae and Karanga, like we open these portals. Yeah, we're time travellers. E kore au e naro, he kākanoa hau irua mai irangiatea. E hoa that is season two of he kākanoa hau. I really dream of a world where Māori own the country that was taken off them. I dream of a world where our way of being is valued and respected. I dream of a world where we don't put people in concrete cages to try to fix problems that are social. E wawatatiana au ki tētahi ao e tautoko e hāpai ana i ngā, ngā momo tikanga a ngā iwi 
where we can look in the mirror and see past and future generations cascade from us like these infinite reflections. I dream of a world that indigenous nations across the globe are leading the health and well-being of, of our planet. Ko te awe wawatahi ana e au te neiwa kia mohi o pū tātou katoa ki o tātou mana. I dream of a world where we have fresh waterways, free from contamination and pollution, where our moana are all flourishing and teeming with life. I really dream of a world where Māori would go back to their marae, have a feast, build on our own land for our own people and live off the land as well. I dream of a world where everyone looks after each other. He Kākanoa Hou was hosted, produced and co-written by me, Kahukutia. Melody Thomas is the other co-writer and producer for the series. She also edited with the help of Kirsten Johnstone. Big mihi to our production assistants, Tehira Mayo Nahi, Briar Pormana, India Logan Riley, Rebecca Parangi. Our accounts manager is Alison Pierce. Our real advisor is Jamie Tehuya Cowell. Mark Chesterman is the series engineer, and Ursula Grace and Francis Morton are the executive producers. Music for the series created by Ruby Soli, Ma and Ranui Maas. And our cover art is by Huriana Kopeke Teaho. So many thank yous to our poets and creatives, Ranui Maas, Zimbri Aulani, Marati Kay, Taranaki Young Grace, Trinity Thompson-Brown and Sinead Overby. Big mihi to the folks at RNZ, Megan Whelan, Shannon Honui-Thompson, Justine Murray and Tim Burnell. This podcast was made with the support of RNZ and New Zealand On Air. The final big thank you is to all of our kai kōrero who shared their thoughts, hopes and dreams for this season of He Kākonoa Hau. We are so grateful. This kaupapa is for generations of Indigenous babies to come. May you be grounded, may you be hopeful, may you always be able to find your way home. Arohanui. Introduce yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Who are you? Farm kids are so independent. You town kids and you're like, you don't know how to do anything. He was like, you can't drive a manual. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe you couldn't drive at night. (laughs) It's written in Old English font, so Old English can read it. Papa is a futurism, like 3 a.m., like eating dumplings on Dominion Road. Like, I get it. Yes, yes. My favourite would you rather is would you rather breastfeed your friends or be breastfed by your friends? <laughs> yeah, okay, this is not going on the podcast. <laughs> what if it's like a glory hole but you've just got one tip through? <laughs> not ready for that kind of exposure. <laughs> <laughs> Did you make this that yourself, fire? Um, the ribbon, the no. tuna. Oh, well, out of the can, you know. <laughs> 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 Just crying in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
you know it's gonna ruin your career. Oh what are you doing? Oh my God. What is that? <laughs>